Mother's Day. It's kind of nice that we have this day set aside. It's always good to remember our moms. And I will miss mine as we all miss ours who have lost theirs. Um, let's see. This is our passage for today, which is 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. So this is for you to take notes if you want. Um, or you can just take the Bible, which is quite a concept. Uh, <laughs> When we were last together, uh, we were in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which focused at one point in verse 17 on the, uh, the rapture or the being caught up. And uh, we had talked about some of the rather, uh, let's just say, aggressive theories that various theologians have with regards to the rapture of whether it's pre-tribulation, pre-wrath, or post-tribulation. Well, if you want to know everything you ever wanted to know about that, it's all in this book. Because those three positions are defended by three different authors. So the first guy gets up and he, has, he writes for about 100 pages, maybe 80 pages, about the pre-tribulation rapture. And then the pre-wrath rapture guy comes on, on the stage and discusses why the first guy is wrong. And then the next guy stands up and says why the first guy is wrong. Then the second man stands up and has 80 pages of how he's right, and the other two stand up. It's just like a debate with no conclusion. <laughs> so the whole idea of a book like this is for you to explore all the various theories that are out there from strong evangelical conservative scholars. These, these, are, these aren't guys with their hairs on, hair on fire and just wild-eyed. These are actually very you know, legitimate people. I mean, we've got Craig Blomberg and Douglas Moo and Alan Holtberg. I mean, these are some of the top scholars in the entire uh, world who disagree with each other on something as simple as when is the rapture going to occur? Not the date, not that, but in the scheme of things. So I'll just pass it around and I want you to have it read by the end of the class. Um, it's, a, it's a series called the Counterpoint Series and there's probably 20 different titles in this series that they will take things like the Millennium, take things like the role of women in the church, things like um, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I mean all these theological flashpoints of disagreement and everybody gets to have their stake. And then poor people like me, when we're done, we're going, well, I don't know. If you guys can't agree, how am I supposed to? And the thing is, when you read them, you come away with going, wow, that's a really good argument. That, that's what I believe. And then you read the counter against it going, oh yeah, that guy was wrong. And then you read the next guy, oh yeah, I believe that, that's really good. And then you read the counter arguments, and when it's all done, you're gonna go, you know what, it's, and I've used this illustration before, it's like the first time you get trifocals, like I did, you have to learn to let your eyes relax so you can see clearly. If you don't, you're fighting it all the time and you get headaches and that's what issues like this kind of bring up. So anyway, <clears throat> they bring up headaches. 
<laughs> you love headaches. <laughs> um, and every once in a while, by the way, uh, a book like that, or in fact the entire series, gets put online in ebook form on sale for as low as $4 instead of the $17 you have here. So that's a way of building your library. Well, it's interesting. We, you know, had spent this time in chapter 14, 4, verses 13 to 18, and then now we're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But you have to remember, the chapter's separations are not divinely inspired. The cha- the, there's no chapter breaks in the Greek text, unless they were added by scholars to help us find and compare to our English Bibles. So you have to look at the fact that verses 13 to 18 kind of dovetail right into this next section. We separate it just for the sake of our study, but he's still talking about the second coming. Paul is still talking to the Thessalonians about the second coming. John Stott says that there are two problems that perplex us all. The first is, what happens after we die? And second, what happens at the end of the world? And you realize those are two questions that very likely the Thessalonian church was asking. And Paul had already been there. He had addressed, most likely, some of this discussion because he keeps referring to the fact that you should know this already. Uh, And this time he's really focusing on what's going to happen at the end of time when Christ returns. So we look at the uh, passage itself. I'll just read the first few verses here. Now concerning the times and the seasons, or as in other translations, almost every other translation, the times and the dates, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Ooh, that sounds like a good title for a movie. What do you think? Anyway. (laughs) Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, our English doesn't uh, uh, distinguish very well that first phrase, times and seasons, or times and dates. Those are two Greek words, separate, different words. The first one is chronos. The idea of a period of time, like your clock, a chronology. The second is the word kairos, or a point in time. So you can have a chronology or a chronos as a period of time, but then the date or the time or the season is very specific. The first century uh, church and the early church fathers did not make any distinction between the two. In fact, uh, most scholars now think that that was just simply a common phrase. So no one thinks about the, the, the chronos or the kairos, the time or the dates. It's just a, a colloquialism, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. It wasn't until later, starting with Augustine, when the medieval church fathers began to really look at this as saying, ooh, there's a real interesting separation here and began to build entire uh, philosophies around it. But when we really look at it, we, we shouldn't try to separate the two. But 
the time and the date. Let's just use the English phraseology. Anybody of you ever run into someone or heard of someone who has declared they know when Jesus is returning and they have the date? I think all of us have. Other than a used bookstore, a whole pile of books, uh, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> it's really quite extraordinary uh, what's been out there over the years. Um, but first, let's look at the scripture says. Mark 13:32. Jesus said, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This is Jesus talking. Even he didn't know. He didn't check his Google calendar. You know, he just, he just didn't set it up. He didn't look. No, that's not it. It just no one knows except the Father. Acts 1.7, again, Jesus is speaking. It is not for you to know times or dates, chronos or kairos, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Matthew 24, 42 through 44, verse 42, you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Again, it's Jesus speaking. Verse 44, Jesus says, The Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Our passage today, we have Paul saying, We don't need to write to you about this, for you're fully aware. Hmm. We know the secular world has been trying to predict when the end of time is coming. Starting in 1947, a magazine called The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has kept a doomsday clock. We hear about it all the time. Anybody know what time it is right now in the doomsday clock before midnight? Because midnight is when all the nuclear holocaust comes and all the bombs fly. So it's not quite midnight, but how many minutes do we have according to the doomsday clock right now? Anybody? Yeah, we, we kind of ignored it. It's two minutes right now. It hasn't been that low since 1953. It has been adjusted several times. Uh, in 2017, it was two and a half minutes. 2018, they made it two minutes. They're obviously playing political games right now with it um, because prior to that, it had only been changed like six times in 50 years. Uh, it had been changed all the way back to 17 minutes before midnight in 1991. Think of what time that was. It was right at the end of the Bush presidency when the world was pretty safe and we had the dot-com hadn't busted yet and everybody was feeling pretty good and so they moved the clock back to 17 minutes but now it's only two minutes away. Also, the secular world is always trying to predict other kinds of things. In December 2016, Reader's Digest, the nice, sleepy, quiet, happy, feel-good magazine, had an article called The Big One that warned that a major overdue earthquake along the northwest coast of the United States would trigger a massive tsunami that would wipe out everything on the coast from Washington to Northern California. It would be the worst disaster in the history of North America. Thank you, Reader's Digest, for that warm, cuddly 
announcement. Anybody read that? Oh yeah, Yellow, yeah, Yellowstone's going to blow up someday. Yeah, we all know that. Yeah, if it weren't for the, you know, the spews, you know, the geysers, we'd be in trouble. It's like a big uh, tea kettle that has, you know, put a stopper in it and it'll all blow up. We get tired of this stuff, don't we? We we end up ignoring it. So, I put together something just for our fun and enjoyment. Um, before I hand it out, I want to read one more passage. This is Paul in Athens, Acts 17.31. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the Bible is very clear. There is a day, there is a time. We just don't know when it is. So I created a chart for you of 10 past predictions of the second coming. That were all wrong. But I found it fascinating. It took, I spent way too much time on this. <laughs> and I had started with about 70 of them. So I had to figure out how could I get it down to just two pages of printout with some explanation about it. Um, and Lisa had to help me with the typos that I found after I printed it out. So let's talk, take a look at some of these. This, there's actually a couple earlier than the first one I have listed, but they're so obscure um, I, they weren't even worth mentioning. But the first one here is listed as January 1st, the year 1000. Pope Sylvester II was elected in 999 AD, and one of the first things he did in his papal edict was declare that the Lord was coming back the next year. Of course, after that didn't happen, as you can see in my paragraph, some proposed that, oh, they had it wrong. It wasn't supposed to be the birth of Jesus. It was supposed to be a thousand or the millennium after his death. Um, Pope Sylvester wasn't around at that time, so he could make that prediction because uh, he was dead by the time that <coughs> prediction didn't happen. Then we move up four centuries in 1420 on Valentine's Day. It wasn't Valentine's Day back then, but this is in Prague. Martinek Hauska told everyone to hide in the mountains between February 1st and February 14th because God would destroy every town and village with fire and usher in the millennium. The people instead rose up against the clergy who disagreed with Hauska and uh, purged them from the earth. In other words, he created a minor revolution that wasn't a very happy one and there was no second coming. In 1533 and 1544, the Anabaptists got involved. They declared that Strasbourg, France was gonna be the new Jerusalem did you know about this one? No, that's a new one. Okay, where is Strasbourg in relation to Germany? Is it? It's right on the border. Right on the border. We live, we live there right next to it. Okay, so it's so close. Just the river. Has it always been in France, or was it? Always been German. It's been German. So this could have all happened in France, or it could have all happened in Germany. Okay, so either one. The Anabaptists in this region stirred up a lot of hullabaloo in 1533. When that didn't happen. 
Another group claimed that it was going to be in Münster, Germany in 1534. And what they did is they just kicked all the Catholics and Lutherans out of the city and made a big mess. About 300 years later, you have the Millerites. This is actually a little bit coming closer to our uh, contemporary time because it has other implications. This failed prediction of October 22nd was referred to as the Great Disappointment. And some of the Millerites continued to set dates and others founded the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Came out of this, this was their founding, was the whole idea of when the Second Coming was happening and Miller was wrong. But, to their credit, the Adventists, they do expect a Second Coming but they don't set dates. Then we have 1874, it's even a little more um, contemporary and well-known. You have Charles Taze Russell, <coughs> who was the president of the Watchtower Society, the founding of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he calculated 1874 to be the, the year of Christ's invisible return, resurrection of the saints in 1875, end of the harvest and a rapture in 1878, and the final day of wrath in 1914. Well, later, the Jehovah's Witnesses changed that around and made 1914 as when Jesus did come back, but invisibly. And he won't actually come for the rest of us until Armageddon. Then you have the Worldwide Church of God. Now, before I start in that section, realize that the current iteration of the Worldwide Church of God is very different than this. They had a complete revival and pretty much jettisoned all of the teachings of their founder. In early editions of the Kingdom of the Cults, there were several chapters, separate chapters on the Worldwide Church of God. Later editions of the Kingdom of the Cults dropped them out because they're no longer a cult. They're just another ch evangelical denomination. So make sure you don't read this and go look them up and say, oh, those are the bad people over there. They had a complete revival and complete turnaround. But <laughs> back in the 30s, 40s, and 70s, you had Herbert Armstrong making regular predictions. And notice at the end of the first paragraph, after the failed predictions in the 30s and 40s and the loss of members, he had to move from Oregon to Pasadena uh, to start over. And then basically ended up with a, another failed prediction in the 70s. Then in 1988, it's the one that uh, Tom mentioned here earlier, Edgar Wisen had published a book called 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Coming in 1988. And here the book is. This is the book. I was in the bookstore business at the time. I was the national buyer for the Berean Christian store chain, and this book came out. They mailed 300,000 copies of this to every pastor in America. I refused to buy it for the chain. I said, yeah, sure, right. This is just heresy. It's the worst form. It's usually a clue when the entire book is in all caps. <laughs> yeah, it's the, there's no lower cap, no, no lower case lettering in here. It's just unbelievable. Um, and you start reading this and you're going, okay, uh, wow, it's very creative, very extensive in his research. And I'll, I'll address it a little bit in, in a bit, but 
problem was is that this book began to spread like wildfire. Anybody remember this book? Okay, Lisa does. Tom, you remember it. Anybody else? Anybody? You don't want to admit you have a copy of it in your home. <laughs> 4.5 million copies sold. Let's just put it in comparison. We've all heard of the bestseller, The Prayer of Jabez. That was a wild bestseller that went everywhere. That sold 5 million. So this almost outsold The Prayer of Jabez in 1988. It got to be such a problem in our store, we were getting calls every five to 10 minutes during the day asking, do you have copies of this? And we would have to say, no, sorry, we don't. And they would all go to the other, to our competitors. So finally we broke down and went, okay, we'll buy the comic book. That's what I called it. And we probably sold 500 a week for the days coming up to September 11 through 13, which was his prediction of when the Lord was going to return. On September 14th, we couldn't sell a single copy. We were very distressed. Big surprise. So what made it really interesting is that the next year he came out with this one on why the Lord was coming back in 1989. Because, as I mentioned in my footnote here, he forgot the year zero in his calculations. And so it's another, this time it isn't in all caps, but it's another complete book on the days and times. How, how did that one sell? Hmm? How did that one oh, sell? nobody, I didn't carry it, nobody cared. Every, and what was really <laughs> ironic is that he predicted another date, but we discovered that he had speaking engagements booked after <laughs> the date that he had predicted Christ was going to return. So I'm not even sure he, his PR people believed him. Now it's easy to mock this, and it deserves it. But when you have something that spreads around the country like this in the conservative evangelical church and gets people all pent up, something is wrong. I got a call from a, a fellow member of the church we were attending at the time, and I don't remember, I don't think he was an elder, but he was a smart guy, you know, he was a, a very intelligent person. He called me, and he wanted to know whether or not I thought this was true, and whether he needed to sell everything and prepare for the end of the world. And he was dead serious. He wasn't kidding. This is how influential this had become. So you might say, okay, Steve, you just read, you know, Mark and Acts and Matthew where Jesus is saying no one can know the time or the date. How does he get around that? Well, right in the very beginning, I mean, it's, it's his reason number one. I'm sorry, reason number two. Um, he went into the Greek because the Greek word gnosko means to know, but Jesus did not use that word. He uses the word oida. And the word oida can mean uh, you either you can know something intuitively in a positive way, or you need to know something intuitively in a negative way. So if it's poised negatively, that means you can figure it out if you study hard. 
so he said, yes, we cannot know the date or the time, but we can know the month that's in here. We can know the month. And he gave a range of days. So he wasn't actually breaking the scriptural law of naming the date. So you might say, okay, Steve, that's well and good. And we can laugh about it and mock about it. And oh, by the way, there was another book that came out, not by the same guy, but the same publisher called The Day and Hour That Jesus Will Return. And it's an entire thing with charts and graphs, um, all pointing at 1989. This is distressing. How can ideas like this get into the fabric of our church in the fabric of our lives and cause us to doubt scripture. How does that happen? Any ideas? I'm asking the group. I want you to think about this. If you had someone in your life who they heard some grand prediction like this and they got very upset, how could they get to that place? What's in their mindset that would allow this to happen? What do you think? It's a great secret. It's human beings, it's a very easy tool for the enemy. That's well said. Yeah. Well, and, um, I think it also shows that an awful lot of people are relying on, um, not, not on studying the Bible themselves, what, is the, what are the people telling me? Right. Well, there's people are smarter than me, and they have studied all this. They must know if they're so um, dogmatic, forceful, and confident in their answer. And we kind of go, wow, that's impressive. I mean, you read this, it's impressive. I'm, you know, as much as we want to mock it, he has it all figured out. I mean, it is just like lined up going back in Daniel's 70 weeks and the Olivet Discourse and all these other things he has it all laid out it's amazing so yeah could it be a search for comfort too I mean I'm thinking like how Lindsay like first Peter Christian 72 all these horrible things happening in the world and so this is the fulfillment of Jesus is going to come back in the midst of it and deliver us from all these other things. That's one thing I can hang on to. Sure. I mean, I read Late Great Planet Earth when I was in late high school, I think it was, when that was a massive book. Uh, I have met three different people in my life who were saved because of reading that book. Now, granted, he didn't name the time or date. He just says it's imminent. It's happening. But he was saying Russia is the bear, and he was kind of taking the world events and putting it into a, a perspective. And it's very attractive. So after this whole Edgar Wisenant thing kind of came to its conclusion, uh, about a month later, the manager of the book department of the store I was managing came into my office and he said, Steve, I need to give you my notice. I need, I'm resigning, I'm, I'm quitting. 
I went, really? Why, what's, what's happening? I mean, you seem to be happy here. He goes, well, I need to go to seminary. You see, I believed every word of this book. And I realized if I could be duped like that, I don't know the scriptures well enough, and I am so convicted and so humiliated that I am going to learn Greek, I'm going to learn Hebrew, I'm going to learn theology, so this will never happen to me again. He had never admitted. He, he, had, he disagreed with me for not carrying the book, probably because he got all the, you know, angry phone calls. You know, because they're like, why don't you have that book? We need to have that book. We need to save our lives. You know, and then we finally got started getting it. And so he's reading this thing, and he's going, he believed it. And he never admitted it to me. And then when the day passed, can you imagine? I mean, he was living this idea that Christ was going to return on September 13th. And when the day passed, his whole life changed in his mind. He's now a pastor in Iowa. I mean, he, it changed a guy for the good, but it goes back to what you were saying. We let other people tell us what to believe, and the idea is you listen, you discern, and then you study the scriptures for yourselves. So you can say, huh, that's a fine idea, but I'm not quite sure I agree with you. But you have to be able to say why you don't agree. You can't just say, well, that's how I was raised. Well, that's good for you, but that is not an answer. That will not get you an A in seminary tests. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Martin, who was our, our Old Testament professor at Grand Canyon, he used to say, I don't care what you believe, you will put my answer on the test. <laughs> I really don't care if you disagree with me, but if you put your answer on the test, you got it wrong. And it's like, oh, okay. And it was that, it, it was, he was doing it, obviously, to make a point, but we had to stop and go, you know, that's a really good way to teach. Because if I disagreed with him, I had to have a reason why, but you know, ultimately, the class was what is being taught. And then I could step away and go, yeah, that was nice for you, Dr. Martin, but I'll take go this way. But this kind of stuff is so dangerous. It's so incredibly dangerous. And it's everywhere we turn. Turn to the second page in your chart. It didn't stop. Anybody remember Harold Camping? That was a big deal, because he was on Family Life Radio, which was one of the major stations in this city. And he had predicted that Christ was coming in 1994, and that didn't happen, so he changed it to 2011. He was wrong, twice. But then notice Ronald Wineland, the next guy, he had competing dates in 2011. <coughs> if you put the two together, you have Harold Camping in May of 2011, Ronald Weiland in September of 2011, Harold Camping in October of 2011, then Ronald Weiland in May of 2012, and then both of them in, in 2013. They were both wrong. And if you'll notice the little last sentence in the Ronald Weiland one, he was convicted of tax evasion and sentenced to three and a half years in federal prison. 
I'd say he had some other problems with his own ethical behavior. And then most recently, you have Mark Blitz, starting in almost 11 years ago, began teaching that Christ's return would correspond with the blood moon of 2015. And for those of you who were kind of watching or listening, uh, the TV preacher John Hagee took that he didn't predict a time and date, he just talked about the foreboding and the forewarning that the blood moon indicated something was going to happen cataclysmic in our world. They were all wrong. And that's what's so distressing. It doesn't stop. The problem for us is that it creates a cynicism in our heart toward the second coming to the point that we dismiss it and don't even think about it. I bet you didn't think about it all week. I did, I had to prepare for this class. So, you know, I'm one up on you. But if you think of how often the parousia, the coming of the Lord, is mentioned in Scripture by Jesus, by Paul, by all the apostles. And we talk at Easter, we talk a lot about the resurrection, and that's, we should. But we never really truly look at the Scriptures and His promise that He is coming back. Because it's been 2,000 years, you think, and by now, He's just forgotten. You know, he's playing his Game Boy somewhere, and we just, we've been forgotten. Well, we forget that there is no time in eternity. It's a blink of an eye. If you look at the Acts passage, Acts 1-7, where Jesus is talking about not knowing the day and time, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But then he finishes the, the, the sentence. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He goes from talking about, you don't know when I'm coming, but while you wait... You need to be spreading the gospel everywhere you can because I will be coming back. So we go back to our passage. Yeah, we just spent you know, 40 minutes on verse 1. Uh, verse 2, you yourselves will be fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, we have to be careful, and I don't want to make too big a deal of this, but you have the coming of the Lord, the parousia, and the day of the Lord. Those are not the same thing. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, whenever that is going to happen. And if you think about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is very uh, dramatic, I guess is the best way to put it, about the day of the Lord. It is mentioned 26 times, and I'm going to read you a couple of them. Amos 5 18 to 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. That should give you a little pause button. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. 
Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the wrong house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Joel chapter 2 verse 31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 9. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, every heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy the sinners in it. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. And a mighty man cries aloud here, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And in Malachi 4, verse 1, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. It is a day of judgment. Not happiness. Destruction. Because God will come in His power and might to judge everyone according to how they have responded to His call to Him. You might say, well, that's good for the Old Testament. And it was fulfilled. I mean, for Amos, he was talking to the northern kingdom and it happened when the Assyrians showed up. And then you got some of those other prophecies. Well, that was to the southern kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar was kind of like the day of the Lord because he basically destroyed everything and took us all captive and knocked down the temple. And Yeah, but the day of the Lord isn't only mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned 17 times in many different ways in the New Testament. It is that day of judgment that is coming. The thing is, as he has said here, it comes like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's going to come. I mean, the thief doesn't call you up and say, could we schedule a time for 2 a.m. on Thursday? Um, you know, just clear, clear the house and we'll just show up and do what we want. You know, I, it was a year ago, my office was broken into in the middle of the night. I come in on Saturday morning and find it all in a disarray. They had come in like these in the night and had their way with everything that I had in that office. I didn't plan for it. I was not very happy about it. It's interesting that he then compares in verse 3 this coming as to labor pains. Now, a pregnant woman knows the pain, knows that it's coming, but they don't know exactly when. 
Not exactly. You have a general date that the doctor has given you as your due date. And I've made the joke before about a staff member I had in the store who came to me and wanted to schedule a day off because his wife's due date was that day. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, this is your first, right? <laughs> and he goes, oh yeah, she came, the baby came on that day. Wow. Like, no, that just doesn't happen. I said, don't expect that to happen on your second kid. It's just not going to work that way. But there is this idea that the thief is unexpected, the labor pains are unavoidable. They're going to come. It's imminent. It is going to happen. There's, you cannot necessarily prevent it in the natural course of things. He is coming. And yet, there are people in verse 3 who are walking around saying, oh, peace and security. This is referring to the common phrase in Paul's day of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That under Roman rule, they could declare that throughout the empire there was peace. They weren't at war with anybody, and they weren't. They controlled the empire. Nobody dared attack them, except on the very outer fringes, and nobody ever cared about that. But if you were living in the middle of the Roman Empire, you were under no fear at all. None of war. Just wasn't going to happen. So you have people going, oh, you know, all is well, all is well. I mean, even today in our society, don't you have people who are saying, can we just all get along? Just, you know, let's just be peace-loving and, and, you know, gather us together and just... Don't impose your beliefs on me, and we'll all get along. But as soon as you give an opinion, bam, well, you're being the aggressive one here. And they're trying to suppress that. Now, here's a little trivia thing for you. The word sudden there in verse 3, it's a very unusual word. It's the Greek word, eifnidios. And it's only found one other place in the entire New Testament. And it's in Luke, chapter 21, verse 34, where it says, Watch yourselves, lest that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Paul and Luke traveled together. And could it be that word, that word suddenly in the English, used by these two writers might have been something that they had either, either Luke had heard Paul use that word because it's such an unusual word. There are many other words for sudden in Greek. In that one, it's a little trivia thing that scholars like to play with. But when we talk about the coming, C.S. Lewis said this in New Christianity. God is going to invade this earth in force. This time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. 
It will be the time when we discover which side we have already chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. And it will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. That's about as clear the evangelistic message as you will ever hear. Because when the day comes, the day of judgment, when Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead, you can't go, can we have a mulligan? Can I do that over? On the night of April 8, 1871, evangelist Dwight Moody preached to his largest Chicago audience ever on the topic of what then shall I do with Jesus? At the end of the sermon, Moody urged everyone present to return the next week with a response to follow Jesus Christ or not. But as the audience left the meeting hall, fire bells were ringing throughout the city. The great Chicago fire had begun that night. The hall itself was destroyed and the following week there was no meeting. For the rest of his life, Dwight Moody regretted not having given an invitation on that night. And some of the people in these audience died in the fire. And that night may have been their last chance. Chicago and Dwight Moody were caught off guard by the fire. You never know when it will be the last day. And we act as if We're immortal, and it will never come. Paul continues, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. I mean... There's a lot of contrast in Paul's writing between the people of light and the people of dark. In Ephesians 4, 18 and 19, he writes, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit like Romans chapter 1? That was Ephesians. Romans chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. But then Paul contrasts that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 to 10, Therefore don't associate with them. For one time... For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is that contrast here. We have in the Old Testament, and John Stott likes to say that in the Old Testament... The idea of the, um, the present age was evil, and then there was an age to come, 
which is the age of the Messiah. And in the New Testament, the Messiah is here, but you still have the present age, but the Messiah is here. So there's this mixture of the two clashing on a regular basis, and we still have that today. And here's the problem. You sit next to, work with, live next to people of the dark as people of the light. And sometimes you cannot tell. How do we tell? Well, you say it's by their fruit. Well, sometimes really good people are really dark. So this is where it comes back to this importance of discussing the gospel at every opportunity that you can. He says further, let us not sleep. Now he's not talking about sleep like they were in the last verses about as a metaphor for being dead. It's actually a different Greek word. But don't sleep as others do, <clears throat> but keep awake and be sober. One Bible teacher said, yeah, there's a couple instances in the Old Testament of great men who fell asleep. General Sisera, in Judges chapter 4, after a big battle, was exhausted. So he went into a tent and fell asleep, and the young woman, Jael, Jael uh, kind of finished the job with a tent peg through his ear. He fell asleep. He was not watching. He deserved his fate, but that's another part of the story. He did fall asleep. The other one was Samson. Samson fell asleep and he lost his hair. Woke up and his strength was gone. He wasn't watching. He wasn't being careful. He wasn't being mindful of those things that are out there. There's quite a few examples all throughout Scripture of falling asleep and not being ready. We get content. We get lazy. It's not a perfect illustration, but it's an interesting one. Stephen Cole, the pastor at the Flagstaff Church, he was a really great teacher. Um, he writes, he goes, I once worked at the swanky Drake Hotel in Chicago. And years before I was there, in July of 1959, Queen Elizabeth was scheduled to visit Chicago. Elaborate preparations were made for her visit. The waterfront was readied for the docking of her ship. Litter baskets were painted and red carpet was ready to be rolled out. Hotels were alert and ready. But when they contacted the Drake Hotel, the manager said, we make no plans for the Queen. Our rooms are always ready for royalty. <laughs> That's brilliant. Is our house always ready for royalty? Here? Are we always ready for his coming? Or if we find out, oh, it's going to be next week? Oh, golly, i got to scrape out the dead wood and sweep the floors. and No. We are to be always ready for royalty. He says, keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who are drunk are drunk at night. But we belong to the day. Let us be sober, self-controlled, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Now, 
didn't he say the breastplate was the breastplate of what in Ephesians? Righteousness. Righteousness. And didn't he say the helmet was the helmet of salvation in Ephesians? What is this? Did he correct himself later? Or just forget? Or did he mix up his metaphors? No, you know, we, we, we can make ourselves crazy if we try to dig into that. Paul's a preacher. He's trying to draw a picture for his audience. And he's using the metaphor of the sentry. A sentry on the watchtower is a soldier. And they are ready for battle. And they are wearing the breastplate. And if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about to your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And here he has faith, hope, and love again. He's re-emphasizing something that he had already talked about. And he was saying it's important. You put on that breastplate of faith and love means you know what you believe and you believe that God is going to never leave you and is unbreakable in his love for you. And that that helmet of hope is to keep your eyes clear that no matter what comes at you, you don't lose your vision. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, and this is just dynamic. Christians, this is your case. Your life is a life of warfare. The world, the flesh, and the devil are a hellish trinity, and your poor nature is wretched mudwork behind which to be entrenched. Are you asleep? Asleep? When Satan has fireballs of lust to hurl into the windows of your eyes? When he has arrows of temptation to shoot into your heart? When he has snares into which to trap your feet? Asleep? When he has undermined your very existence and when he is about to apply the match to which to destroy you unless sovereign grace prevents it? Oh, sleep not, soldiers of the cross. To sleep in wartime is utterly inconsistent. Great Spirit of God forbid that we should slumber. Again, we get complacent, we get easy living, we don't have the persecuted church concepts here in our own congregation necessarily. Not like that. As Ray Pritchard says, we need to wake up, we need to clean up, and we need to dress up. Put on that armor. Wake up. Be ready. Because He is coming soon. Verse 9. For God has not designed us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. If you look at verse 10, you see the phrase, "He who died so that we might live. You just take the three sections. He died so that we might live, and therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. If you remember at the end of verse 
18, the end of chapter 4 and verse 18, he said, therefore encourage one another with these words. The day of the Lord, this day of God's wrath and judgment is coming. It will come when we are no more. Because at that point, there is no more time. And we immediately move into the realm of timelessness. And that's judgment at that point. We can't act like, oh yeah, you know, I don't worry about it. There's a author in our industry who passed away last week. She was 37 years old. She got an infection, hit her brain, went into a coma, and never came out. You don't plan for that. So let us leave behind a husband and two very small children under the age of three. You don't plan for that. Life is temporary. Eternity is forever. And God is trying to say through Paul to us today, take that as an encouragement, as a warning, as it should be, but also as an encouragement because as children of light, we have hope. It will all pull under his wing and under his covering. I have run out of time, so let's uh, pray and let's end our time together. Lord, thank you for this incredible word. So much to think about, so much to pray about, so much to digest. But your word is full. Your promises are secure. And in that we hope. In Jesus' name.